Well, you made it this morning. All right, you must really love Jesus. All right. We are, yeah, we're, we're glad you're here. <clears throat> no, what, what a good weekend it, it really has been. You know, over two years ago, my wife Savannah and I were in Dallas, Texas at the time, and we sensed that God was leading us to Crossroads. But I got to tell you, it was a really tough decision for us considering we loved our church community and where we were at at the time. But we really knew that God was opening a door for us to come to Crossroads after a lot of prayer and counsel and after coming across this one number right here. You see, this number alone represents the amount of people right in our community who still need to be told that their past doesn't have to define them any longer. 120,000 of our neighbors, coworkers, waiters, waitresses, bank tellers need to be reminded that there is a better way to live and there's nothing they've done that's bigger than the cross of Jesus. 120,000 people in our very own backyard need to be told that God is for them and not against them. You see, this number alone represents the reason why we are doing the all-in giving initiative for the next two years here at Crossroads. You see, as a church, we will not relent or give up until the entire tri-state community has been turned upside down for Jesus in the glory of God. And so I just want to thank you for being on mission with us as a church as we continue on in this journey. Because you know what? I really believe that our best days as a church are still ahead of us and not behind us. And I hope that you believe that too uh, and are excited about the future as we are. Well, this weekend uh, we do begin a brand new series called Vantage Point where we're going to be looking at the cross of Jesus from the different perspectives of those who were eyewitnesses to the crucifixion nearly 2,000 years ago. Now here's the reason why we really went with this idea and landed upon it. You and I both know that whatever we go through in life, there are always alternative perspectives in our different circumstances. Now whatever your perspective is during an experience in life, maybe it was an event that you went to or a season of life that you maybe endured, it was greatly affected by the way that you think, the way that you feel in prior life experiences up until that point in your life, right? I mean, nearly everything that we go through has an alternative vantage point. I mean, take, for example, a college basketball game that you might watch. Now, there's one game being played by two different teams, but there are many different vantage points playing out throughout the course of the game. And so you have the coach who's responsible for strategizing and identifying the different offense and defense to run in order to win the game. He's motivating his players. That's his mission throughout the course of the game. Well, then you have the players who are responsible for carrying out and executing the offense and defense, and they're running up and down the court, and they're really responsible for for actually winning the game. And depending upon which team you are cheering for determines whether or not you think the refs are calling a fair game or not, right? You see, your vantage point determines how you view the game. And there are one game, it's one event, it's one thing going on, yet there are a lot of different ways to view it. And so for the next several weeks here at Crossroads, we're going to look at the cross and and ask ourselves, what was the perspective of those who witnessed it 2,000 years ago? We're going to do that by asking ourselves two basic questions we're going to answer every single week. The first question is this, what was their vantage point of the cross? And what was their perspective? And secondly, what does that particular vantage point mean for us today? Now, I know that there are a lot of us here today who are here for various reasons. Maybe you lost a bet. Uh, maybe she wouldn't date you unless you came to church uh, with her this morning. Or perhaps you were just getting a little bit stir-crazy cabin fever in light of the weather this week, and so you decided to get out and come to church. 
And so whatever your reason is for coming to church this morning, I want you to know that we are really glad that you're here. And maybe you're sitting there thinking to yourself right about now, why the cross? I mean, why this gruesome device of torture to end Jesus' life? In fact, I know a lot of long-time mature believers who wonder this very same question as well. If we, as people, as humanity, really messed up God's plan that badly when sin entered the world, was the cross the only way for God to reconcile what had happened? I mean, couldn't he have just declared amnesty and said, okay, I'm going to forget everything that's happened in the past and from this day forward, just do better and try a little bit harder. I mean, couldn't God have just declared a big do-over? I mean, he could have. But you see, then he no longer would be a God of love. What do I mean by that? Well, love is costly and love requires sacrifice. And you see, if God would have declared a big do-over when sin first entered this world, it would have revealed that his love for us as people had limits upon it, and that would have been up until the point it cost him the life of his son. And so rather, when Jesus came to this earth and was crucified, God in essence was declaring, I will, I will do anything to be connected back to you in a relationship. And blogger and writer Ann Voskamp writes it like this by saying that love without a cross has no backbone. You see, the cross, the cross reveals the seriousness of our sin, and we've all been deemed guilty, but it also shows us the love and the worth that we have in our Father's eyes. Now, as we go forward, I think it's going to be important for us to understand this on several different levels, and so here's just another way to understand the cross. Let me say it this way, that Jesus became sin so that sin wouldn't end us. All right, this statement alone is really important to understand because it really describes Jesus' mission yet illustrates the gruesomeness of the cross. A guy by the name of Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, for our sake, he, talking about God, made him, talking about Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. In other words, Jesus, he wasn't, he didn't sin, he was sinless. So that in him, so that in Christ, we, talking about us, might become the righteousness of God. Now the one thing each and every one of us in here today have in common is that we are sinners. We've all made decisions, harbored motivations and emotions that have been in direct rebellion against what a holy God originally declared was right and true for our life. And so according to the creator of life, death is the result. I mean, like how a citizen commits a crime, the punishment is at least spending separation in a jail cell somewhere. Sin leads to forever separation from the presence of God. That's what's fair because we've all committed treason against our creator. Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> but you see, Jesus became sin so that sin wouldn't end us and that we might choose life with him now and forever. You see, the cross was the means to which God could forgive us and absorb the punishment for the sin in our life. Now, those who know me know that I'm pretty particular about my car. Um, here's how psychotic I am. I rarely park in between two different cars in the parking lot. All right? Uh, reason being is because someone could open up their door onto my door and give me a really big scratch or ding on my car door, and that just, that just wouldn't be good, all right? And so I typically just park pretty far away uh, so that my car will stay in really good condition. Now, I want you to know that I'm not that guy who takes up two or three parking places in the parking lot, okay? I mean, I want to key his car just as much as you do when I see that happening, <laughs> But over a year ago, I got a newer used car that was, that was in really good condition at the time. 
I say it was in good condition because one afternoon I let my wife drive it. She took my car to uh, Schnucks to pick up some last-minute groceries, and as she was pulling out of the parking lot that evening, it was getting dark out, the kids were screaming and throwing things in the car. She didn't see it, but she made a sharp right-hand turn, and there was a shopping cart that had been wedged right up against a curb, and as she drove by it, it left a nice 24-inch long dent scratch on my rear passenger door that cost about $125 to fix. Now, we're good now. All right, that was 14 months, five weeks, and two days ago. <clears throat> We've just started sleeping in the same bed again. Now, later that night when she came home and told me what had happened, we really had two options moving forward with what we could do with what had happened. Either A, go to the body shop and have it fixed outright, or B, just ignore what had been done, and I would drive around in a car that had an obvious blemish upon it. But you see, with either option, somebody would have to pay for what was done, right? I mean, either it would come out of our bank account by, by paying for it to be fixed, or what I would do is I would just absorb that accident upon myself by driving around in a car that had a damaged door upon it. Now, what had happened wasn't just going to absorb into thin air and go away, right? Author Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, says it like this. He says, forgiveness means bearing the cost instead of making the wrongdoer do it. So what? So you can reach out in love to seek your enemy's renewal and change. You see, this is what God has done for us through the cross. And whether or not you see it, it reveals our worth, yet it also reveals the repulsiveness of our sin to a holy God. Now this leads me to the next thing that we must understand before moving forward in this series, and that's this, that nobody put Jesus on the cross. He put himself there. You see, that's, this is why it's really incorrect to say that the Roman soldiers took Jesus' life. Why is that? Well, you only take things from people who are weak, vulnerable, or ignorant. You see, none describe Jesus. Christ said it like this in John chapter 10, verse 18. He says, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily, for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. You see, Jesus was king. He was not some weak, whiny, passive pansy who was at the mercy of a group of men more stronger and powerful than he. No, he was king. All right, he was not backed up against a corner with no way out, and so he just decided to give in because that was the only way to get out of his current situation. I mean, do you realize he could have called the whole thing off when he wanted to? And so what Christ basically declares here is he realized that it was either you or him that would be upon the cross, and so he decided to stand up and say, you know what, take me instead. And so if you have your Bibles or a Bible app on your phone or iPad device, go ahead and jump to the New Testament book of Matthew uh, today we're going to be in chapter 26. Matthew is towards the back of your Bibles, right in between the book of Malachi and Mark in the New Testament. Uh, back half of your Bibles, I believe it's on page 704 in the Bibles right in front of you. Now if you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible right in front of you in that pew. And if you're worshiping with us back in the chapel, it should be right underneath the chair there. Uh, that's our free gift for you. We want you to take that home and get acquainted with it because we believe that the power of God is contained within the pages of Scripture. Now today we're going to be looking at the cross of Jesus from the vantage point of the religious leaders, okay? 
Now, when we say religious leaders, you need to know that that is synonymous with priests, elders, Sanhedrin, Pharisees, okay? They're all religious leaders. I just don't want you to be confused moving forward with with what we read here in just a moment in Matthew chapter 26. All right, we're going to start in uh, verse 3, and then we're going to skip around towards the end of the chapter. But here's how this kind of scene unfolds as the pinnacle is arriving to a point where Jesus is going to be crucified, all right? Now, this group of men alone are responsible for Jesus' death. They wanted him dead more than just about anybody, all right? And so here's what we read uh, in verse 3. At that same time, the leading priests and elders were meeting at the residence of Caiaphas, the high priest, plotting how to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration, they agreed. Why? Or the people may riot. All right, so right off we notice how crafty the priests and the elders were. They saw Christ as a threat to their authority and their religion. And so these men just became obsessed with the idea of eliminating Jesus altogether. I like how one Bible translates what the religious leaders were saying in verse 5 by saying this. The people would riot if they knew what we were really doing. You see, these so-called righteous men knew that their plan was wrong and even illegal. And so what do they do? They go behind closed doors to cover up what was really going on. I want you to notice that it's ironic that the tax collectors, the sinners, and the prostitutes weren't the ones plotting Jesus' death. I mean, that would have been really predictable since their spiritual condition was so obvious. But instead, it was this group of guys who claimed to walk really closely with God. I mean, outwardly, they were put together. I mean, they had all the right Bible verses memorized with a fish on their car bumper, right? In fact, they had bumper stickers on their chariots that said, this chariot is prayer conditioned, all right? Every morning they would post a picture on Facebook or Instagram of their Bible open on the couch by the fireplace and hashtag it quiet time, hashtag blessed, all right? They knew Christian music on K-Love. You see, their obedience outwardly was really impressive. But you see, like a lot of our stories in here, they were just experts at covering over their inner brokenness, their inner condition. I want you to listen to um, what Jesus says about their true condition earlier on in this week. He says this, talking about the religious leaders. He says, everything they do is for show. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Hypocrites, Jesus says. For you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones in all sorts of impurities. That's what he says to them earlier on. Now you see, it's really easy to point fingers at the religious leaders for their obvious hypocrisy. But one question I forced myself to ask this week is how often have I said some things that I really didn't mean in the moment? I mean, how many times have I maybe criticized something for some, someone for something that I may be secretly dealing with In my own life, our hypocrisy reveals our insecurity. Now here's the thing, nobody has to teach us to run after approval from others and to protect ourselves. I mean, that just comes pretty naturally, right? And so here's how we tend to do it. We put aside whatever we're struggling with, whatever life is really like behind closed doors, and we run after this image of ourselves that isn't so messy. Again, why do we do this? Well, because we want to be accepted and admired by people around us. And so if anything in our life tends to threaten that type of community or, community or that type of fellowship with others, 
We just put aside whatever we're dealing with. We put up our guard and act like we're more put together than we really are. And so maybe for you, you have some doubts and questions about what you read in the Bible. And you have some questions that that you can't seem to reconcile about God. But you would never voice them out loud. Because there are some people in your life who might think that you've just gone off the deep end if you start asking questions like that. And so, at the end of the day, you fear rejection. It could be that you're really struggling in your marriage. You and your spouse can't seem to get along for whatever reason. You wouldn't dare ask for help, though, because people might think that you have been living a lie all this time. I mean, after all, your respect might be compromised. People might think that you have been weaker than you really have been. And so again, you fear what people might think around you. You fear that type of rejection. Or when people ask you how you're doing, you say fine, then you quickly divert the subject to something else because you don't want to really face your inner reality of what's going on. I mean, if people really knew the depression that you've been going through lately, would they want to hang out with you? I mean, if those insecurities surfaced, what would people really think about who you are as a person? I think a lot of us in here feel as if we have been living a lie. What happens? What happens when the filter we think is helping us really ends up hurting us? I mean, what do we do? How do we react when this inner Pharisee that's within us all surfaces and is brought to light? And so back to our story. um, The religious leaders recruit one of Jesus' buddies, Judas, to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. Ken talked about this at length last last week. And so later on that night, Judas leads the soldiers to Jesus where they arrest him and take him to the house of Caiaphas where all the religious leaders are gathered at the time. Now Caiaphas was the high priest and I want you to pay attention to what we read in verse 59 as this scene kind of unfolds. Inside, the leading priest and the entire high council, again religious leaders, were trying to find witnesses who would lie about Jesus. Why? So they could put him to death. Now, it's hard to describe how messed up and unfair this entire scenario was as Jesus stood before this group of of men called the Sanhedrin. Now, these 71 religious leaders were in charge of all the religious affairs of their day. I mean, they were kind of like what pastors are to a church. You see, it was not only illegal to hold a trial at night, but it was illegal to hold it over Passover as well. Now, just so you know, Passover was a sacred holiday when the Jews remembered how God delivered their ancestors from Egyptian slavery. And so Passover was to Israel what Fourth of July is to America. It's an occasion where we remember how costly our freedom is. You see, years before, when the Israelites were still in Egypt, the ruler at the time refused to release the Jews from captivity. And so God sent all these different plagues to Egypt so that Pharaoh would change his mind and realize that when you're up against the sovereign God of the universe, it never ends well. I mean, Pharaoh was kind of like us husbands. He was really stubborn and he just didn't listen, all right? And so finally, God threatens to do the unthinkable and sweep through Egypt, killing all the firstborn male children. But just like what God does with us today, he provided a way out. You see, before every firstborn son was struck down, he gave special instructions to those who would listen as to how they could save the life of their sons. And so God told them to purchase a one-year-old male lamb, slaughter it, then take the blood from the slaughter and brush it and wipe it over the doorframe of their home. 
And so for every house that had blood covering the doorframe, the angel of death would then, here's the word, pass over that household and the life of the firstborn son would be rescued. And so each year after that, God told the Jews to remember his faithfulness by recalling the night that he saved all the firstborn male children. But really, there's more to it than just that. You see, Passover was a holiday that foretold of a future event when a man would enter this dark and broken world and become our sacrifice so that we may be released from our captivity. You see, Jesus is God's firstborn son that shed his blood so that death may pass over us when we enter eternity. And that's why in scripture, Jesus is often referred to as the lamb of God. He's the only sacrifice suitable to absorb the consequences of our sin. Look at verse 60. But even though they found many who agreed to give false witness, they could not use anyone's testimony. Finally, two men came forward who declared, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. This false witness strategy wasn't working out too well for the religious leaders, and so they finally find a way to convict Jesus. Blasphemy. Blasphemy is the mocking of God or speaking about him in a very abusive way. And since they did not receive Jesus as God, as God in flesh, they just labeled him as crazy and demon-possessed. And so while all these false accusations are being brought against Christ, I want you to notice how silent he remains in this scene. You see, he knows that it's a fixed trial and that he's going to lose. And so rather than getting defensive, he just stands there very vulnerably. Now here's where you and I enter this scene. Jesus was defenseless at his trial so that you and I wouldn't be at ours. What do I mean by that? Well, again, Jesus came to this earth to absorb the consequences of our sin. He became sin so that sin wouldn't end us so that we might live life with him now and forever. He had a clear mission to accomplish, and this trial was the road that led to Jesus becoming sin for us, all right? Now, one day, every person who's ever lived, every person in this room and in the chapel this morning will have a trial of their own before the throne of God, and we will either be deemed faultless or guilty. Now, the only way to stand before the throne of God faultless is by allowing Jesus to stand in your place. You see, only the blood of Jesus is strong enough to cover over our sin and cover the doorframe of our life for all of eternity. And so Jesus knows this, and he is standing defenseless at this trial, and it makes the Sanhedrin a little bit angry at this point, all right? And so uh, look at what we read next in verse 62. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? Verse 63, but Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus replied, you have said it. All right, so Jesus is claiming his deity here. You have said it, and in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so what Jesus declares here is all authority that he and God, sovereign creator of the universe, are one. That he is God. Verse 65, then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, blasphemy. Why do we need any other witnesses? You have heard all this blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted. He deserves to die. Then they began to spit in Jesus' face and beat him. 
with their fists and some slapped him jeering, prophesy to us, you Messiah, who hit you that time? You see, after this happened, Jesus would go on to endure about five more trials before his death. And again, at any point, he could have just called the whole thing off and ended it. But as we've looked at the cross through the lens of the religious leaders, I have to be honest with you this morning. It scares me a little bit. I mean, if there's anything the Pharisees can teach us in 2015, it's that it's possible, it's possible to have just enough of God in your life to really keep you from God. I mean, it's been said that religion is the safest place to hide from God. You see, one of the greatest threats to your relationship with the Lord is thinking that you can somehow earn or perform your way in. You see, this is a less offensive approach than grace because it becomes all about you and what you do and what you bring to the table. I mean, why surrender control when you can just try harder? I mean, why repent when you can just do more? Yet a lot of us, we shy away from the idea of grace because it forces us to admit that we are broken, that we are helpless, hopeless, and lost without God's finished work on our behalf through the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, grace forces us to face our true broken condition and admit weakness. I mean, it's a little bit uncomfortable thinking about the fact that when it comes to salvation, we bring nothing to the table. And so that's where many of us are at right now. A lot of us need to be having conversations with ourselves either now or as we drive home from church today. Because let's be honest, you've never really, you've never really come face to face with your true condition. I mean, you've kept the rules. You've always attended church. You've obeyed maybe fairly well. You've never done anything to really bring harm or defame to your family's name. You've never really had a bad habit take over your life. And the list could go on and on and on. But don't, don't you ever wonder, is that it? I mean, is that really what following Jesus is all about? Is Jesus just into behavior modification and self-help to make my life improved? And if that's where you're at today, don't you ever wonder, how do, you, how do I ever know if I've done enough good to be accepted by God? Now, inevitably, um, this mindset affects how we view God, others, and ultimately ourselves. Some symptoms of this kind of thinking is that you constantly compare yourselves to others. You look down on other Christians when they don't obey as well as you do. You pray out of duty, not delight, because you think that if you forget to one night that God's going to be angry with you the next morning. Or you find yourself saying things to others that you really don't mean. You give out of a motivation just to receive stuff from God. You won't associate with certain Christians simply because they view something in the Bible differently than you. You're cynical towards people, especially when others receive a second chance after a big mistake. You feel like God owes you something for some sacrifice that you've made in your past. And if that describes you, then let me just gently say that your identity is resting in something other than the grace of Jesus provided to you by the cross. But I've got some really offensively, I've got some offensively good news for you. There's a letter in the New Testament written by a guy named Paul to a church in the first century located in modern-day Turkey. It was a really good church until one day some teachers started coming in and teaching that the cross of Jesus alone wasn't good enough to save. They were teaching that you had to be circumcised in order to be accepted by God. 
All right, so if you don't know what circumcision is, just ask your mom, all right? <laughs> Do not Google it. You can thank me later. Come on, let, let up a little bit. <laughs> now, the problem with these preachers saying that you had to be circumcised to be a Christian was that God never said it, and it completely nullified the cross of Jesus. And so Paul is basically saying in this letter that you cannot add to Jesus without totally subtracting Jesus from the equation. And so as he's concluding his letter to this church, I want you to look at what he says. He says, those who are trying to force you to be circumcised want you to look good to others. Religion, he says. They don't want to be persecuted for teaching that the cross of Christ alone can save. If there's anything we've learned this past week with 21 Christians being slaughtered is that the cross is very polarizing. It's offensive Now, circumcision in this context can be interchangeable with any rule or obligation or checklist that you think you must accomplish in order to receive God's favor. That's why Paul goes on to say this in verse 14. He says, as for me, may I never boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, it doesn't matter whether we have been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. Now, Paul doesn't say that that being new happens by trying harder. He doesn't say that you become a new creation by doing more. No, being made new only happens through the cross of Jesus, which demands our repentance. And that's why it's the only thing worth bragging about or resting our identity in. Now, back 2,000 years ago, the cross wasn't a piece of jewelry that you wore around your neck. No one had it hanging in the walls of their homes for decoration. You see, it was a despicable device of torture, The Latin word for cross was so obscene that no polite Roman citizen would say it in public. It was kind of like a cuss word. And so if the subject of the cross ever came up in discussion, the Romans came came up with a different phrase to kind of get away from it, and it was this, hanging on the unlucky tree. They came up with that phrase just to make it more pleasant in social settings. And so what Paul says here in Galatians is that it's upon this unlucky tree that we can find freedom. That it's upon this unlucky tree where we can obtain this new identity and become new creations because of what Christ has done for us. And so for the religious leaders who scheme to have Jesus killed, for those of us today who have been burdened by religion, for those who just are insecure in our identity in Christ, for those of us who feel as if we are never good enough, for those of us who are constantly seeking to be accepted by others, for the dad who's maybe lost his job and feels as if he, he's just not worth it anymore, the cross of Jesus Christ can still mean something for you. And so regardless of where you come from today, the cross means this. The cross means that we don't have to earn what we already have. You don't have to earn what you already have. I mean, you wouldn't keep making your loan payment if the bank somehow canceled your car loan, right? I mean, that would just be crazy. And yet that's how a lot of us have chosen to live. We are trying to earn this gift that's been freely given to us. And yet our identity as followers of Jesus will never move beyond the cross of Jesus. You see, the truest and the most important thing about who you are as a person is that Jesus died in your place and paid the punishment for your sin. Now, I've I've said a lot of stupid things in my life before. I know that's surprising to a lot of you here today. (laughs) 
But I think one of the dumbest things I ever said one time I was teaching on prayer at another church and I said something along the lines of this. I said, Jesus went to the cross for you. The least thing you could ever do is spend time with him in prayer. And I tell you, that was really dumb of me to say because, first of all, it gave the impression that you were somehow supposed to pay back what God has already done for you. And you see, that's not only impossible, but I think a lot of people left church that day with a bad motivation to pray and obey because some young preacher got up and gave a nice drive-by guilting towards obedience. You see, grace, not guilt, is what leads us into lasting obedience, which keeps us from becoming overly impressed with ourselves. When you begin to realize that you don't have to earn what you, don't, what you already have, you not only experience freedom, but you experience a type of intimacy with your sovereign creator, with your heavenly father that you didn't know was possible. I'm done, all right? But there's one thing I just want to challenge you with before we head into the week and before we come back next week, and it's this. Will you come back next week? And will you bring somebody with you? You know, this entire series is really going to be a journey for us as we head towards the cross on Easter Sunday. And I just wonder what it would look like if more and more people in our community began to realize that they don't have to earn what they already have or what's already been made available to them through the cross. And that message of grace will bring about repentance. And so come back next week and bring someone with you. All right? Let's pray. God, I love you so much and I, and I am thankful that I don't have to earn what I already have. And God, so often I can forget that and so often I can kind of submit to a burdensome weight that, God, you never intended for us to have. And God, I'm thankful that because of the cross, we don't have to earn what we already have. And God, that demands our repentance. That demands that we turn our life and turn towards you to seek identity and to seek significance. But God, your grace is sufficient no matter what we go through. And as a church this morning, we just say thank you. We love you, and may we go into this week with your light on us. May we go into this week proclaiming the cross that means something to every person if they allow it. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.